Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. My name is Tom, you may know me as the creator of Like Stories of Old, and I'm joined by fellow video essayist Thomas Flight to talk about James Cameron's Avatar. So Thomas, with Avatar 2 finally coming out 13 years after the original, yes. I think we both wanted to revisit the original once more before we adventure into the sequel, which we're going to do in this month's bonus episodes, which you can find on Nebula. Alternatively, you can also join our community on Patreon, where you can support the show, talk movies with us and other patrons, and if you so choose to, get access to all the bonus episodes. But for now, we're revisiting Avatar 1. Thomas, what was your experience with this movie or seeing this movie again? I'm guessing a couple of years after you saw it uh, for the first time. This actually was the first time I saw it. So I missed the initial theatrical run way back mm-hmm. in the day. And then I had tried maybe multiple times to watch it at home. And every time I was just kind of like, mm, I'm not into it. It wasn't in 3D. It felt like something was missing. Mm-hmm. So I've never, I never watched the 2D version because it was, uh-huh. it was really popular when it came out and I didn't see mm-hmm. it then because it was kind of right before I really got into film. But then immediately after that, it kind of lost a lot of cultural cachet, or it wasn't one of these like, oh, you have to mm-hmm. see Avatar kind of after it left theaters. And so I ju- it was just one that I never felt that compelled to go back and visit until it came back into theaters. And I was kind of like, this is my chance to see it in its original kind of you know, 3D mm-hmm. glory. As it was meant to be. Yes. So I was excited. I was excited to, to mm-hmm. kind of be able to dive into this world that was, I mean, this was the highest grossing film at one time. And yeah, it was fascinating to go there. I can kind of see what the hype was about. I think I enjoyed it probably, I think more than I expected to. Mm-hmm. It made me motion sick a little bit for some reason. <laughs> And I usually don't have an issue with like 3D movies or or getting motion sick, but this one triggered mm-hmm. me for some reason. But I enjoyed it in spite of that. So if that tells you anything, I was able to overcome like this mild queasiness that I had for the almost three hours. So yeah, the animation or the you know visual effects or whatever, I felt like hold up surprisingly well. I think it might have been remastered a little bit. Okay, I'm not yeah. sure to what extent they brushed everything up, but in my memory, it looked the same as it did in 2009, yeah. but that might be my own memory playing tricks on me. But I thought as well that it still, that it it still holds still up pretty well. pretty well. Yeah. And I think well, this is something maybe we can get into a little bit more, but CGI spectacles, like movies that are really just shrouded in tons and tons, like are mostly CGI are more commonplace Mm -hmm. now. But it was very interesting to watch this movie 13 years later with the touchstone of kind of where big CGI spectacle movies are at now and feel a very Mm -hmm. distinct difference. This movie feels very different to me. It felt more like almost like what Judd Apatow was trying to do with like his Disney quote unquote live action animated, the the more the photorealistic like Mm-hmm. animated films it felt more like what he is trying to do there than it did like a marvel film or some of these other movies that have mixtures of live action and a lot of cgi so yeah technically i thought it was really interesting and held up better than 
I imagined that it would watching like mm-hmm. a thir- you know, a 13-year-old mostly mm-hmm. CG, 3D kind of extravaganza. That was my experience seeing it for the first time relative yeah. to my impression of what it was. What was it like for you to revisit it? Yeah, so I also got to see the re-release. I saw it in 3D high frame rate, which I'd never seen before, I think. But there haven't been that many movies that have been released in that format. I think maybe only The Hobbit. But I remember at that time, there was only a few theaters in my country that actually showed it in that format, and I ended up missing it. But and, and so I was excited to check that out, just to see what that experience is like. And there's some parts where it feels like that motion smoothing that some TVs have, yeah. or unfortunately that a lot of TVs have by default nowadays, that you have to turn off if you're really a fan of movies. But it does aid with the 3D. It makes it less blurry to me, which adds yeah. that extra level of dimensionality to it, which I really enjoyed and thought was really immersing. The only issue is that it's not, I think it's the same with uh, IMAX in Nolan's films, that not every sequence is shot in that format. So it will shift between high frame rate and regular frame rate sequences, which can be a bit jarring when it suddenly feels, it it feels like you're playing a video game on hardware that can't quite run it. And so every now and then your frame rate will spike to like 60 and then will drop back to 20. If you're going to like have the, the differences, it's only going to make it more noticeable that you're watching either one or the other. So in that sense, I was slightly disappointed that it wasn't equalized across the entire spectrum. I'm not sure why that choice was made or how it was only, it seemed to me only in some random sequences that I noticed, oh, now it's turned on, now it's turned right. off. And even though it didn't always quite seem as logical as you can see with a Nolan movie where he where you know, oh, this is the big shot, that's going to be the IMAX shot. But in Avatar, it was it seemed to be like some action sequences were high frame rate, but then others were not. And then suddenly there was this more low stakes dialogue scene that was high frame rate, but then another one that was not. And I'm not sure. But overall, yeah. it was still a very enjoyable experience. I think it's very underrated still. No, I'm not sure it's underrated, but it, it's interesting to see how the culture has come back around a little bit. As you mentioned at the beginning, I think it is true that at some point the cultural or at least the perceived cultural impact of the movie was gone a little bit. But then as soon as Avatar 2 was announced, it felt like it was immediately everyone changed back and they suddenly reappreciated or re-realized the value of Avatar, the the original one again. And going back to it now, it is still a very enjoyable adventure movie, I think. Not too long ago, I made a video about the sort of anatomy of adventure movies. And I think that this one still is such a perfect example of how to effectively execute a successful adventure story. And that that really engrosses people into this new world and makes them excited to learn more. And I went with my girlfriend and another friend, and but she actually thought like the action scenes were the most boring part of the movie and i kind of agree that in the last half hour or so it becomes more the the predictable battle and it's shot very well it's very exciting very thrilling and i still like it but i think in i would almost say it as a compliment that it's this is the least exciting part of the movie and that to me when you can or when you say that the first part of a movie is actually the best part in terms of an at least in terms of an adventure movie that's a really good sign that you're really telling an an exciting adventure to some extent because it's not what it essentially says is that 
people are not coming to see the action. They're not coming to see spectacle. They're really coming because they're invested in the world or they feel invested in the characters or yeah. and their relation to that world. It was fascinating to me, especially also if you compare it to blockbusters now, that, that just how much attention is paid to, in the early part of the movie, to the whole ecosystem of Pandora and not just in the sense like, oh, this is a strange alien planet. These are the characters that live there. And that's the part that's relevant to the plot. But they really go into different types of animals, different types of plants, different types of biological systems. It really takes its time to sell this world as one that you would want to explore yourself yes. and that you want to spend time in. Yeah, And that, I think, is still... There's few movies that really achieve such a feat and that's to me is just extraordinary still there's also some thematic elements that i think might be interesting to talk about there's the obvious it's been joked about a lot that it's essentially dances with wolves or pocahontas and there is some obvious imagery there that invokes the colonial history of especially western european countries and uh, the early united states but i think there's also more do it regarding environmentalism and maybe yeah. even some commentaries on humanitarianism, foreign aid, and the way our own arrogance can sometimes blind us, even if we're trying to do the right thing to another sort of people, so to say. Right. I wouldn't say it's a particularly deep movie, but it does connect together quite well, in my opinion. It struck me that it's probably the most concise and like bold-faced, just kind of like anti-colonialist, environmentalist adventure piece in the big yeah. blockbuster space. Like, I don't know what else would compete with this in terms of those messages kind of on this scale. Usually, those yeah. are things I would expect to Dances see. with wolves, probably. Right, yeah, something like that. But <laughs> yeah. these are the kind of themes I expect to see explored in, like, the latest kind of indie French film or something mm -hmm. that's, like, about colonialism or something. And those themes get seeded into blockbusters in different places as subplots or a little bit of subtext. But that's what this movie is kind of about is all these things. Mm -hmm. It's about, it's a very environmentalist movie. I don't know how you couldn't read it that way, really. And so that was kind of interesting and cool to see. And we don't really have things on this scale that deal with those unless i'm just blanking on some very obvious ones mm -hmm. but that was cool um, i think one of the ways it's really successful at that is something that you pointed to which is it spends the time immersing you in the world of the film and the pandora the world it's creating and i think that does go mm -hmm. hand in hand with the experience of this movie theatrically the 3d yeah, definitely being a it's a, essentially an animated movie i think that's kind of mm -hmm. how i was thinking about it the cg mm -hmm. is very good but it's never quite at the point where you're like oh yes this is real mm -hmm. it looks like you're inside a digital world but it reminded yeah. me a lot of i felt immersed in the world of pandora for me the experience connected much more with experiences i've had playing video games feelings of immersion mm. in a world that I've yeah. had while playing video games where you know it's fake, it looks digital, it never quite, you're never quite tricked into feeling like you're seeing the world in the same way you are sometimes when you're watching a movie. 
but mm-hmm. there's still a level at which you can suspend disbelief and become invested in this animated landscape yeah. and world. And I think the 3D and the visuals and and how immersive it is theatrically plays a big role in that. And so mm-hmm. you are interested in seeing all these like plants and animals and stuff that are invented because they're interesting looking and they're presented in an interesting way and you're seeing them in this 3D environment and getting to fly through that environment and that's the most exciting, interesting part of the movie. And that grounds you within that world to a certain degree where you become, I feel like this is a movie where the way it's set up, I become invested not so much in like the arc of Jake Sully or his character, although I do to some extent, but more so in you become invested in the world and the tension of whether or not that world is going to be destroyed or exploited or whatever. And in that sense, I think it's it's very effective at kind of exploring those mm-hmm. ideas and yeah. and playing with them. Yeah, I, I think it might be fun to repeat some of the points that I made in that adventure, adventure video of mine, because that's one thing I argued there, that one of the most important qualities of an adventure movie is creating that feeling of texture. Yeah. Like actually showing characters interact with the world around them that so that it doesn't feel like they're standing against a blue screen or a green screen or that they're, you know, you want to feel like you're actually able to touch the stuff that's around them. And that's something that Avatar, despite being all fake, it still does really well, even if it is in that video gamey way that you mentioned. Because if you look at, for example, the first time that Jake gets into his Avatar, the first thing he does is he runs out, runs through like a, a crop field, it really emphasizes his feet running through the dirt and then he stops and you see him kind of like wiggling his toes in the sand and that's, it's literally like a grounding image. Yeah. And there's a lot of that like it, but it really zooms in on characters interacting with plants or with animals. It really does all the work to really get that feeling or that sensation that you're in a tangible world that you can just like reach out and touch it. And I think that's one element that really sells it. And also just the fact that there's a lot of characters that are really passionate about the world itself. There's the Navi who have obviously that great spiritual and even that biological connection with the world around them, but also in the human characters that you as the audience relate to. Those are the ones like Sigourney Weaver's character, who's this biologist or botanist or some person who's really passionate and interested in the world and who wants to learn about it. And as you're identifying with her character, you think movies have this great magic that they kind of invoke within you that same passion that you're you're almost tricked into caring about something that you might not always be super interested in. Yeah, Jake Sully, in that sense, is more of a blank slate, but he is one who is someone who's very, because of that very open-minded, I think he literally refers to himself as an empty cup at some point when he's first taken to the Navi and one of them remarks that there's nothing they can teach him because he's all the foreigners or the aliens, they're all full cups. And then Jake sort of reassures them by saying that, oh no, my cup is completely (laughs) empty. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, it's a little joke, but I think it does signify a little bit that he is someone who is willing to open himself up and to take in that world and to learn about it. And, you know, because he's the main character, we identify with him or we connect to him to some extent. 
that becomes our surrogate into that world, which just really helps to get you to channel your own excitement into the whole movie watching experience. And lastly, it also does, it also helps that all the bad guys, the ones who are, aren't romanticized by this world, are all more like ridiculously evil or corporate or yeah, yeah. they all feel like these <laughs> stereotypes and maybe almost cartoonishly evil villains, which might seem superficial, but I, I'm guessing it's done on purpose. Just it's the way they have the mineral that they're looking for, the material that it's called unobtainium. It's, yeah. you know, it's so on the nose that it has to be right. deliberate almost. <laughs> but yeah, yeah And I think that to some extent, the whole story feeling like this archetypal tale of small group standing up towards the big guy and the neutral party within it finding his purpose in that conflict. It's there's just nothing that distracts from the adventure too much and the focus on the world itself, like everything else, it feels... You don't have to think about the complex intricacies of the plot or very complicated character dynamics. It's all very simplistic, but I think that it's done in a good way, in a way that serves the actual experience that James Cameron probably wanted to convey or to deliver. And I think that's really, the core experience is really just the adventure into this strange new world in a way that only movies or you know maybe video games as well can provide. Yeah. I agree. I think you are correct in that assessment of the main driving force here being the kind of fun, exciting main adventure. And there is there is this theme and drama playing out, but that is portrayed with those broader strokes where you're not you're not having to like read into subtext and all these things to get mm -hmm. that stuff. It's just right there. And you can kind of just get excited about, hey, they're trying to jump on a flying creature and tame it. Or those are the moments in the movie to me that it allows you to get invested in those individual moments or the excitement of those individual moments, which I think to your point is what makes it effective as a kind of adventure film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Maybe then more on a thematic note, did you have any first impressions on, we've touched on a little bit on some of the seeds that were planted here and there, the environmentalist message. How do you think it more specifically how that's all woven into the movie and to what extent do you think it's successful in communicating any message, if at all? Yeah, I was thinking about that and there's several things going on. So I guess first I'll mm -hmm. just kind of try to lay out the different things that I saw in it. One is just kind of, like we already mentioned, a purely environmentalist mm -hmm. message, which is more conservationist. Like, it's bad to just willy-nilly go into a place and try to harvest its resources yeah. without sensitivity to the world and mm -hmm. the environment as a whole, which is pretty, I mean, that has a lot of direct real-world corollaries that, we often go in and try to take oil out of a place or whatever other resource. And it also links to European conquests for resources like gold and things like that. That would have also had a connection to another element of the film, which is related kind of inevitably to that portion. But the sort of colonialist, like we are bigger and the mindset of we're this more technologically advanced society, quote unquote, and we're going to come in and 
tell the indigenous peoples or what to do or just displace them or just destroy them because mm-hmm. we can. And so that there you go. I think that's one yeah. thing that that is the ethic of the people who are coming in. They're just kind of like, yeah, we're bigger and more powerful, so we can do this. There's mm-hmm. not much of an exploration beyond that. But then the third thing that I see in this that relates to those two things, but is kind of a separate thing, is just the the movie's overarching sort of like new age kind of ecology, spirituality that runs throughout mm-hmm. the film, yeah. which might feel to some people who aren't familiar with some of those things or ideas very like, oh, maybe it's just invented for Pandora for this world. But a lot of the ideas about interconnectivity and I'm blanking on sort of everything that's described, but a lot of that stuff, Mm -hmm. the sort of eco-spirituality of the Navi is just ripped directly from vague New Age spiritualism or various like Western Mm -hmm. importations of different real world spiritual systems that involve like integration Mm -hmm. of nature and those kinds of things. So those are kind of the three aspects that I see in terms of how it explores those things. The environmentalist message I think is very clear, but simplistic. Mm. It's, It's effective in that by getting you on the side of the world and immersing you in sort of the beauty of this world, you are then very disheartened to see it destroyed. So in terms of the environmentalist, I think it does that effectively, but not it's not very nuanced. It's just like black, white, yeah. bad to destroy, good to conserve. I'm not saying that's bad. I can pretty much get behind that vibe. But it's not like <laughs> it's not like digging into all these like nuanced yeah. like it's not really telling you anything that you didn't feel already right. for They're not even probably. saying like, oh, if they find this unobtainium, unless they are, I don't I don't think they put any cost to it. Like, if we don't get this unattainium, like, uh, millions of people back on Earth are going to starve or something like that. No, it's, I think it was purely presented as a token of greed yes. and yeah. desired welfare, not really a, we have to do this otherwise right. moral dilemma. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Which I think is it, fine. It's definitely very one-sided. Yeah, I yeah. think it's fine. But I can imagine a version of this story where you're like, it is a moral dilemma where it's like, oh, we don't mm-hmm. want to be doing this, but we feel like we need to because blank, mm. blank, whatever. Yeah. I, again, I think that's just because James Cameron didn't want that to be yes. the focus of the yeah. story. He didn't want to have, because that would shift the entire focus point of the movie or the, at least the, the philosophical tension. And I'm not sure if that direction would have necessarily been better, even though it's more complex or at least on the right. surface, uh, it would seem more nuanced or more two-sided. But yeah, I agree. The environmentalism message, at least at, on the surface level as it is, it's quite simplistic. It's quite new agey as well. I think there's some interesting, at least I that's what I noticed this time, some interesting connections there as to how it deals with our conceptions of nature right. and how it makes some things explicit that we only treat as more spiritual. But I'll get back to that one. I think also to your second point with, that's why you talked about- Colonialism and displacing indigenous people. and Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's obviously, it's related to the first point. But I think what I liked about my last viewing of the movie is that I noticed that it wasn't just the colonialist or the colonists are bad because they 
use violence and destruction, but they also shown that they first tried to do other stuff. Though They tried to set up schools, they gave them clothing, medicine, whatever, and roads, infrastructure. And I, I think that the movie, more subtly than the other message, communicates here that there's also that sense of arrogance in that we believe that just because we have, yeah. in our perception, that we have more or that we are more advanced, that we automatically have something to offer, even though we don't consider, or at least don't truly consider that there might be cultures out there like the Navi that truly do not care about anything that we could give them. Yeah, yeah. And so that even when the efforts were still more benign and more well-intentioned, that there was still a same drive of arrogance that we can do some good here if only we insert ourselves in some yeah. way. And I think the movie does communicate that quite well. I think there's some discussions with the corporate guy about, who's actually in hindsight quite willing to go for the carrot option before right. having to uh, use the stick as he uses, or uh, as he puts it, even though it's only motivated by the stick leading to more bad press, and right, so right. the carrot being better in that sense. But yeah, I, I did like this time around that there is more discussion about and more willingness to try out different methods, even though they might still be the same, a more benign reflection of the same arrogance that ultimately ends up trashing the whole home tree and uh, nearly destroys all the beauty that we've come to care for in this world. Yeah. So that's something that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it has this kind of implicit message of advocating for a, a true like understanding of the way the Navi are living and their knowledge of the world of Pandora and appreciating that in a holistic sense instead of just going in and trying to like, you know, teach them immediately mm -hmm. the modernized, yeah, yeah. you know, for lack of a better word, westernized uh, mm -hmm. stuff and then trying to study their world independent of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it uh, is interesting that it, it kind of portrays that approach that uh, Sigourney Weaver's character, I forget her name, takes as kind of also unsuccessful to a certain degree. They, I mean, they show those characters as being sort of accepted and liked by the Navi to some extent, mm -hmm. but they aren't the ones who, like Jake Sully, kind of rally and save the day and like, or help you know, I don't know. It, there's a distinction drawn there between the two. Yeah, there's some unshown backstory there as to her character's name was Grace, Grace Augustine, that she apparently had set up a school and tried out these different ways of connecting and communicating with the Navi. And that took a turn for the worse yeah. at some point. That's not really depicted in the movie. I think it's because she ultimately as well had to maybe negotiate some relocation for the Navi people. And I think maybe the difference with Jake is that Jake really comes in as that empty cup. He really opens himself up to learning, to becoming part of the Navi instead of becoming a communication point with them. And I like that in that sense, it really challenges you to see the world differently from the ground up almost, really go at it from a different perspective to the point where I think that Jake also at some points uh, reflects on that you can no longer really tell which is the dream and which is the real life. I'm not sure like if you've ever had that if you go camping or, if, or you've been in the woods for a while and you're uh, just spending the day 
building a campfire, reading a book or something, or doing hiking, and just kind of relaxing away from it all. And then you start thinking, or you go back and you feel this kind of whiplash effect where you're no longer sure, was that like the vacation from your real right. life? Or is your real life just a delusion from <laughs> what should be your real life in yeah, a sense? Yeah. And that to me still is a fascinating, I think it's a real philosophical problem that we face as humans who, especially in our modern society, tend to have this vague sense of disconnection from nature, even though when we are actually in nature, we also don't feel like we're quite belonging there, or we feel like that's some in some way a deviation from our quote-unquote reality, which is in, in the city, in the modern life, or just even in a suburb or a small town. Yeah. It's, it's like, and even I for myself, like I am on board with the environmentalist message generally, like I think it's bad to ruin the environment we live in, but at the same time, I don't want to go back to right. <laughs> living in the woods. I also enjoy the comforts of modern society, yeah. or at least so that maybe I've just uh, deluded myself into thinking that. And I don't know, maybe if I were to go back to the woods and go back to a simple life, maybe at over, over time I'd be satisfied with that. But, you know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Not many. <laughs> I think that, that, yeah, I think that's just... <laughs> For a lot of people, maybe such questions came up with yes. this movie. I think I remember when Avatar first came out, there were a whole, or at least a significant amount of people who got really into this world and they started living according to the Navi rules and they became really spiritual and became like this cultish following of people who were, yeah, they, they got, they went, they really went too deep yeah. in the woods <laughs> and <laughs> may, may have gotten themselves lost. But it does show that there was a, real effect that this movie had on people's perception on how they live and maybe on how they should live and what their relation to the environment should look like which yeah i think i think is still um, yeah worthwhile to reflect on and to uh, think about there's at least one kernel of that that i find to be very true mm -hmm. you know there's bigger philosophical questions surrounding all of it that i think are worth asking but there's the specific part of it that really resonates with me is this idea that knowledge of the world around you and knowledge of nature does beget an ability to live more harmoniously with it or a greater appreciation for it or like and sensitivity to it and there's a certain sense in which when you walk into the woods as a person raised in a modern environment you don't really mm -hmm. see things at a very high resolution you see like oh there's trees and then there's leaves and dirt and sticks mm -hmm. like that's the the level at which you see things but if you spend more and more time in that environment and as you learn more and more about an environment and nature you start to see oh that's an oak that's a maple that's a sparrow you see not just the clump ca like larger categories of things but individual pieces and you see the way in which they're working together you know that the mushrooms are breaking apart yeah. the log that has fallen down and that's where new trees are going to grow out. And you can see it more for what it is at higher resolution. And that can allow us to, then when we interact with that environment, not just go in there and stomp around and destroy things and wreck things, <laughs> but live in a more symbiotic relationship with the environment mm -hmm. as a whole. 
And so I think that's one message that's kind of here within this movie that I think is a very positive one that can we can apply to mm-hmm. our lives in general, which is just that understanding nature in greater depth is an important part of not just, you know, bulldozing it mindlessly, both literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. There's a moment in this that is kind of funny to me. They like test the roots or they take some kind of sample like early on in the movie. I think it's their first mm-hmm. like mission out that Jake Silly goes with them. And they're like mind blown by the fact that these trees like communicate to each other through a mm-hmm. network of electrical signals or something like that. And I don't know, I don't yeah. know if this was, I think since 2009, I think it's a more recent discovery or understanding, but we now know there have been studies that have been done where we now know that trees through networks of mycelia, mushroom mycelia, do communicate with each other and even send nutrients back and forth. So trees that are suffering will sometimes draw nutrients into other trees through networks of roots and things like this. Mm -hmm. The forests are generally interconnected underneath the surface in a way that people didn't know they were before. Yeah, I've read that too, yeah, and it's fascinating. It just, it just struck me as interesting that in this, obviously it's not like, at least that mm-hmm. we know of, <laughs> obviously our forests on earth are not like storing the memories of our ancestors as far as we're aware, which is what it ends up being yeah. on Pandora. Like that electrical network <laughs> is like part of, you know, something a lot bigger. Mm -hmm. But it was just funny to me that it's presented as this like science fiction concept almost that these trees Mm -hmm. would communicate with one another. And I'm pretty sure it's a science nonfiction. (laughs) (laughs) That's much more, that's much closer to the reality than maybe James Cameron even realized when he was making this movie. I was also thinking about when you mentioned the way we perceive nature, that it also plays into our sense of functionality with regards to nature. And I think it was the philosopher Heidegger who talked about human beings being essentially functional perceivers. Like when we see the world, we see it in terms of how we utilize it. And then only when something breaks, we start to reflect on meanings and other elements. And so in that sense, when you apply that to what you just said about us not being as familiar with nature as we once were, it also would imply that we've lost that sense of how we make nature functional to us in that more direct way. Like, I know how to make my way to the grocery store. I know how to use the scanner that they have there so I can scan my own products. I'm not sure if that's a thing in the US, but we, in our grocery stores, like we can scan our own products and then we do it like a self-checkout at the end. I know how, how it all works. I know how to use the bags to my stuff i know my route home i know how to cook and prepare like those semi prepared products but when i'm out in nature like even if i buy mushrooms from the supermarket like i couldn't find them back in the forest like that's where i would be completely lost again and so i think that in that sense we've maybe the disconnect with nature we sometimes feel is also the disconnect of us knowing that we no longer are able to function within nature in its original state, so to say, without the additional functions that we've created for ourselves in modern society. So yeah, I think that's yeah. that's also something that maybe heightens the issue that you mentioned with that perceived sense of disconnect. And once you've then reclaimed more of that knowledge of how things work and how you uh, can utilize them or not, or maybe, you know, uh, with functionality also comes the knowledge of ma- knowing what you should leave as it is yeah. and not 
touch, like poison mushrooms or entire ecosystems that you probably shouldn't destroy because that's ultimately going to be bad for you as well. There's that sense of knowledge that's also been lost a little bit in that avatar. Not deeply, but, you know, somewhat touches upon with its call to have us reevaluate nature or reappreciate it, uh, at least in the context of that story where it's obviously just about Pandora. Yeah. But Yeah, I think I find its environmentalist message compelling. I think it's a little more clunky when it comes to how it's interacting with ideas about colonialism and indigenous people groups in the sense that mm -hmm. I haven't seen indigenous critics talk about this movie. I don't really know how they feel about it, but it's just interesting to me that mm -hmm. what's presented in this movie is something that on one hand you could tie to any number of specific scenarios or events like, you know, the colonization of North America or we talked about Apocalypse Now not that long ago, like any number of instance or even more recent stuff any number of instances where a larger, more technologically advanced society goes in and forcefully displaces indigenous groups mm -hmm. to get out of resource or just take land or whatever. Yeah. But it essentially just creates an avatar out of those, for lack of a better term, avatar out mm -hmm. of those <laughs> people groups. It's kind yeah. of borrowing and... Kind of a romanticized yeah, image. And also. it's just borrowing and mixing and matching and maybe even appro you know appropriating... I'm not saying that makes it wholesale like this is a bad movie and that they shouldn't be doing that. I just think mm. it's it's less effective at exploring those ideas than it is the broader environmentalist. Like, I don't yeah. know if it has anything interesting to say. It feels more like a white people, like colonialist revisionist history kind of a thing of like a mm. reimagining like of the scenario from a perspective where colonialism loses. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It still takes a very specific. And, yeah. and again, I don't think it's a bad movie for those reasons, specifically, mm -hmm. at least for me, other, you know, other people might feel differently, but I find that element of it kind of interesting. And I'll be very interested mm -hmm. to see where the future films go and kind of this movie coming out in 2009 and its relationship to a lot of these ideas and how much kind of the cultural discourse surrounding those things has changed over the last 13 years. Hmm. I'll be very interested to see how the handling of that, like if it is impacted by that, if it changes, if it's similar, I don't know. That's just a point of curiosity that I have about the direction these yeah. movies will take. This episode was brought to you by Mubi the curated streaming service showing hand-picked exceptional films from around the globe, which both Thomas and I have been big fans of for many years. They have a fantastic library of amazing films, and they add a new one every day. Whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, there's always something new to discover. And if you want to listen to more in-depth discussions about cinema, Mubi's acclaimed audio documentary series, The Mubi Podcast, returns this summer for its second season. This time, it's going to focus on movie theaters themselves. It's titled Only in Theaters, and the new season will tell surprising stories of individual movie theaters that had a huge impact on film history, and in some cases, history in general. You can listen to the latest season of the movie podcast absolutely free wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you want to try Mubi itself, you can do so for free for 30 days by going to mubi.com slash cinema of meaning. That's mubi, M-U-B-I dot com slash cinema of meaning for 30 days of great cinema for free. Click the link in the description or go to mubi.com slash cinema of meaning for your extended 30 day free trial. I think my issue with that is that it feels to some extent like the way they depict the Navi and to some extent their whole ecosystem kind of betrays the same bias that they want to deconstruct in the villains where there is this kind of westernized modern perspective that's still projected onto it even though they want to separate themselves from it or they think they're doing it but they're subverting a part of their own ideology maybe but not the whole of it. There's a very fascinating author called Bruno Latour, I think it is, a French ecologist or political ecologist who's written a lot about how we tend to over-romanticize, especially indigenous people, and that the way we tend to depict them as being very in harmony with nature and very much in connected, like spiritually connected to nature is kind of our own projection of it, while in reality, in let's say ancient peoples, including our own forefathers, simply didn't have a separated sense of human civilization and nature. They were simply living within it in that more functional state that I talked about earlier. I think he argued that living in harmony is not the same as living without a perceived disconnect. There's a distinction there that's quite subtle, but yet important and you can see that with the Navi there not it's literally stated in the movie I think where Grace Augustine Sigourney Weaver's character mentions that it's not just pagan voodoo that's going on there but there's with the whole spiritual thing but there's an actual biological ground so in that sense they kind of take the religious or that spiritual aspect of it and they try to make it explicit or grounded in reality which to some extent is the same as depicting God as real right in a movie which for me, lessens the discussion a little bit or the depth of the discussion a little bit because it takes one important element that in reality is like more like a question mark and it turns it, gives it like an explicit answer to it. Whereas in real life, the question of what is nature and what should nature be is more open to us. In the movie, it's more explicitly answered because it's literally this hard drive where we can download our souls into and upload them into different life forms even. So that's where for me the intricacies of the whole discussion regarding our connection with nature ends kind of abruptly for me there, where it feels like that doesn't give a lot of leeway for more interesting discussion or more different angles or different perspectives. It kind of gives a very definitive answer, which that might be my only real thematic criticism of the movie, from my perspective at least. That's something that also ties into the depiction of the natives and the indigenous people of Pandora. But as you said, I'm not sure there might be indigenous critics who might have a different perspective on it and have more to say about it than I have. But just from a purely more point of view of ecological philosophy, that's to me where kind of the tension is and the movie falls a bit flat for me. I was thinking about it even in relation to maybe like Brave New World by Terrence Malick, where there's an element the New or, World. Yes, The New World, not Brave New World. That's the old uh, <laughs> <I'll> just <hug laughs> the, <laughs> Maybe slightly related. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, that that's another element of this was like early on in this movie, you, this is sidebar for a second. Uh, early on in this movie, mm-hmm. you're like, 
oh, there's elements here of virtual reality and maybe there will be a commentary about, you know, living outside of ourselves in an avatar and where the future is going. Not at all what this movie is really concerned about, which is fine. I think it has <laughs> other things to do. <laughs> but I think that's another way in which it sets up something interesting there and then doesn't go anywhere with it, which, yeah, I'm okay with. But yeah. for a second... There's a whole untouched discussion on how consciousness works yes. and whether or not humans have a soul and what you can do with it and how it relates to biology. And yeah, and the possibility with VR worlds becoming more immersive and interesting, the possibility of that becoming a very enticing experience, especially for people who might be able to have experiences in those virtual worlds that they wouldn't be able to have Sully doesn't, mm. his legs don't work in his real body, but that's one of the things that mm. really motivates him to live in this world is he gets to run around and he's a full human being. So there's interesting things there that are kind of going on, but the movie's not thematically really interested in, in exploring them. Back to what I was going to say regarding the new world is I don't think our view of Natiri, I think is how you say her name. I won't say never, but we don't really escape like Jake's gaze of her. We mostly mm. see her and the Navi through Jake's gaze and through the gaze yeah. of, whereas there are some movies that explore this world or this dynamic between an indigenous people group and a colonialist force where the indigenous people are humanized a little bit and we see them from a gaze that kind of exists outside of the outsiders or separate from the mm -hmm. outsiders. If I had a criticism that I was going to say, oh, I wish this movie did, I wish it escaped that a little bit more and it felt like these people exist independent of Jake Sully's interaction with them, which it kind of, mm -hmm. I don't know, it's not like a, that's not like a huge problem in my view, but while we're nitpicking things that could have done slightly better, that would <laughs> that would be the only thing, or that would be one of the yeah. things that I would say that like maybe it could do differently. But again, I'll be interested to see how yeah. the story and the progression of the story from here affects that because it seems like it's going to be a little bit of a different perspective. It's one of those things that's very difficult to truly subvert yes. or to... Because even if you wouldn't have a character like Jake and it would just be the perspective of the, the story would be told from the Navi perspective, we as the audience would have the gaze right. that Sully has, but it would just be the placement of that connection would be replaced yeah. a little bit. Because you do get to see, yeah, as you said, you get to see a lot about the Navi and, the, and their culture and their ways, and but we all kind of experience it through the avatar, so to say. But yeah, even if, if you take Sully out of that equation and it would just be the Navi fighting against the anonymous outsider force, then the film would probably still depict all those yeah. customs and that culture, and we would still be gazing at it with our outside perspective right. so that's it's a point i understand but i also feel that it's one that's really hard to completely yes. solve in yeah some way. i agree i agree um, again i'm not presenting that in a kind of binary like oh yeah. this makes the movie bad and it would have been better if it had done mm -hmm. this or if it had mm -hmm. done this it would have fixed us certain things explicitly i think it's just an yep. interesting part yep. of the discussion around the framing of these kinds of stories. Uh, we talked about it a little bit with Apocalypse Now, too, for people who 
listen to that, where it, to some extent, is about the story you're telling, too. And I think it's mm -hmm. worth acknowledging that for some people who might be watching a movie, especially a movie this big, that's a blockbuster, if you're not completely on board, you know, this is going to go to audiences or presumably went to some audiences who wouldn't be completely on board to some extent with some of the like anti-colonialist messaging that's in this, even if they're not explicitly mm. colonialist, you, they might be in their thinking to some degree. And I think there can be an effectiveness to a little bit of handholding there of like, okay, we'll take you and introduce mm -hmm. you to this world and another culture through the eyes of somebody that you can relate to. And, you know, that might be necessary for some people to kind of bridge the gap and see things from another perspective. So it's yeah. hard to pass judgment on how that is done. I don't know. It's it's just, I think it's an interesting, mm -hmm. an yeah. interesting issue with these kind of stories. But to put a cap on all of this, I think you're mm -hmm. going back to your point at the very beginning. This is an interesting discussion, but it's not really... Ultimately, the movie is working most effectively as like, hey, it's an adventure movie and we're on an adventure with Jake Sully and the Navi mm -hmm. through this land. And ultimately, what we're invested in is we want to see it not get blown up, basically. And I found it emotionally engaging when those things happen and it's the tension is really coming to a head and the tree is destroyed and all of those things you feel a genuine mm -hmm. sense of loss because you've been immersed in that world for a few hours. And I think that's where the movie is most affecting. Yeah, I think that even though it may not go as deep when it comes to communicating our relation to nature or our conceptions of nature in a clearly philosophical or ideological sense, it does convey that emotional connection that we feel nevertheless, even though it might be, even though intellectually you know the kind of nature that's depicted on Pandora is a little bit too spiritual, right. maybe a little bit too new agey, even though... Even though they say it's it's all um, scientific. <laughs> yeah, and even though that makes it a bit harder to translate to real-world environmentalist issues where we, even though we learn more about nature, like the, the connected Trees, yeah. forests that you talked about, yeah. It's still not infused with the kind of religion yes. that is made explicit in Avatar. And so in that sense, there's friction there when we want to use this as a template or as a starting point to, or as a metaphor even, to talk about issues that we have with our own environment, which I don't think are quite the same. But uh, yeah, nevertheless, I think it does really connect with that sense of us wanting to be more of a part of nature or at least feeling a sort of disconnect and feeling that desire to do better and in some way acknowledge that what we're doing to the environment isn't always great yeah. and sometimes even downright destructive and harmful to individual peoples and you know plants animals and whole ecosystems but at the same time it's not a depressing movie it still presents all of it with a sense of hope and with a sense of there's a potentiality for rebirth as it presents at the end with Jake truly becoming a Navi and truly transcending his former body. I'm not sure what to do with that thematically, but I guess we'll learn more about that in the later movies. Although I don't think the concept of consciousness and the way it can jump from one organism to another 
through the help of the Awa, I think it was called, the god or goddess or force that connects everything together on Pandora. But uh, Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to discuss further and I'm interested to see and talk about the way of the water, way of water or whatever, whatever the next one is called. And yeah. perhaps more from there. Uh, the next avatar, yeah. The next avatar is called The Way of Water. And you can go over to Nebula right now. And that's where we will continue our yeah, discussion. We'll, we'll talk more about the latest one. You can find out if I got motion sick the second time around. Or <laughs> if uh, if the 3D... I'm, I'm interested to see on a technical standpoint how things have changed. And yeah. I think there will be some interesting thematic elements inevitably to discuss because that's part of the world here. And like I said, I think I'll be interested to see where some of that is going. But yeah. I predict it's mostly going to follow along the same train of what's going to make or break the movie. Is it an exciting adventure and world to be immersed in? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the level that I think James Cameron will be operating on with the next one. So we'll find out. Yeah, I'm mostly fascinated by the fact that they shot not one sequel, but four. So, yes. And considering how the first Avatar is this very archetypal, simplistic story with a clear beginning, middle, end, and it's just a nice little yeah. package, then I can imagine if they would just do one sequel that it might be a soft reboot right. or maybe like The Force Awakens where it would kind of be the Earth same, is back. but not really. <laughs> and we got bigger guns yeah. this time. <laughs> <laughs> But if considering they're doing four extra movies, I'm curious to see, or at least I'm hoping that there would also be a larger yeah. story arc that goes more in depth in certain issues. Maybe even on, maybe even goes a little bit deeper into how the consciousness for, functions or how Awa functions as this kind of grand consciousness of this planet. I'm mostly excited to also explore different parts of the planet. I think based on the trailer, at least, it's going to look pretty good and take us to some interesting new places because that's also the difficult thing. You can only to recapture that magic of discovering something for the first time or discovering that world for the first time. That's not going to be the same as it was the yeah. first time around. So I have faith in Cameron that he's going to provide us with interesting new parts of this world or to really deliver on that sense of adventure again. Thematically, I'm also interested to see where it will progress to, uh, what it says about our relation to nature, our conceptions of nature, our relation to other people on this planet, on other planets, potentially. <laughs> yeah. We got that to look forward to. And you as well, if you go over to Nebula, where you can probably right now, we're recording this before We've actually seen Avatar 2, but by the time you're listening to this, you're, we've probably seen it, we've probably talked about it, and you can listen to it on Nebula, which is our creator-owned streaming service where you can experience our podcast ad-free, listen to all of our episodes a week early, and get access to all of our monthly bonus episodes. At this point, the list has become too long to recite completely, but besides Avatar 2, The Way of Water, we've, for example, covered Upstream Color, Drive, Alien Covenant, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Right now, the best way to get access to Nebula is by signing up for Curiosity Stream, which comes with a free Nebula subscription. To learn more, visit curiositystream.com slash cinemaofmeaning, or just follow the link in the show notes, and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>